Good afternoon and welcome to Cato. I'm the Chairman Emeritus of Cato and now the Senior Economic uh, Scholar at Cato. And we're pleased to have uh, the opportunity to have this particular forum. The discussion is about the case for or against uh, public transit, or most importantly, uh, whether we should be concerned about it uh, taking um, taxpayer money one way or the other or requiring special privileges in order to be viable. We have two very good speakers and very knowledgeable about the issue. Uh, the first speaker is going to be Randy O'Toole, who is a senior fellow with us and, uh, and works on, with us on uh, land use and transportation issues. He started his career studying national forest policy, a work that culminated in a 1988 book, Reforming the Forest Service. Uh, since 1995, his work has focused on urban planning and transportation policy. He was Yale University's uh, McCluskey uh, Conservatism Fellow in 1998, the SCAFE Visiting Scholar at the University of California at Berkeley in 1999, and the Merrill Visiting Professorship at Utah State University for two, uh, in 2000. He lives in uh, what I can assure you is a remote village <laughs> at the base of the eastern side of the Oregon Cascades, a place called Camp Sherman that you probably won't find on any map, uh, where he works at home and uh, bicycles 20, 20 to 30 miles a day. Randy, you're on. Thank you. Uh, Bill actually knows Camp Sherman very well because he grew up in Bend. When people say, where do you live? I say, well, have you heard of Bend, Oregon? And if they say yes, I say, have you heard of Sisters, Oregon? I, if they say yes, I say, have you heard of Camp Sherman, Oregon? But usually by that time, they're saying no. So uh, uh, I just have to hope that they can uh, uh, relate. But I'm closer to the mountains than either Sisters or Camp Sherman. In any case, um, socialism... Oops, have we got some? Uh -uh. There we go. Socialism is a word that's been overused a lot recently. Uh, you talk about government bailouts. You talk about government regulation. You talk about uh, government subsidies. People say socialism. And uh, so it's become a, a kind of a bad word. You don't want to use it because it's been so overused. And, and, and just, just using it kind of discredits you. But nevertheless... We have to admit that if any industry in the United States has been socialized, it's urban transit. Uh, more than 99% of the nation's urban transit industry is owned by state, local, state or local governments. And this is new. Uh, back in 1960, the vast majority of transit systems in the United States were privately owned. They were profitable. Uh, they were experiencing declining ridership. Uh, but they were responding to that in, in ways that were rational for them. Uh, but in 1964, Congress passed the Urban Mass Transit Act, uh, and the goal of that act was to help save commuter trains going into five or six major cities, uh, Washington, or excuse me, New York, Boston, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. Those commuter trains, and in every case except San Francisco, crossed state lines. So it was considered a matter of interstate commerce to protect those commuter trains. But it wasn't enough to just protect a few commuter trains. Politically, if you start supporting transit in a few cities, you have to support it in all cities. So eventually, 
uh, cities all across the country uh, took over their private transit operations so that they could become eligible for federal transit grants. The result of this nationalization, if you will, of, of our public transit system has been a huge decline of transit productivity. If we look, for example, at the number of people carried per transit trip uh, or per, per operating employee, and I'm thankful for the American Public Transportation Association for, for providing these data on their website, uh, we can see it reached a high during World War II, but before World War II, it was about 60,000 trips per employee per year. After World War II, it held steady at about 60,000 trips per employee per year until the mid-1960s, and as more and more uh, local governments and state governments took over transit, uh, the, the number of trips carried per operating employee declined, mainly because the number of operating employees increased, but also because in many cities, transit ridership continued to decline, and they didn't respond rationally to that. They just spent more and more money seeing uh, fewer and fewer people ride their buses and trains. Uh, today, the number of trips carried per operating employee has declined by about 50% from uh, the 1960s. If we look at the cost per trip, we see it's increased uh, by about five times. This is the operating cost per transit trip. doesn't count capital costs. Uh, capital costs have also increased considerably, but we don't have good data for capital costs before about 1988. Uh, but just looking at operating costs, uh, the cost per trip has gone way, way up, uh, which means that we're spending a lot more money, but we're not getting anything out of it. Uh, if there's been any victory at all with government transit, it is that the number of trips per resident has flattened out. We can see after World War II, it declined dramatically. Uh, but is flattened out at about 45 trips per capita per urban resident in the United States, 45 trips a year. Uh, that's not a lot. Uh, and the fact that it's flattened out might seem to be, at, at least it's not declining anymore, but at the same time when we compare transit with driving, uh, since 1970 the number of miles of driving per uh, resident has increased by uh, 120%, whereas the number of transit trips per resident has remained flat. So as a share of total travel, transit has continued to decline. Now today, the, the, the reason for this decline in uh, transit productivity can be directly traced to government ownership and to government funding. Today, only about 20 to 25% of all funding for transit comes from transit fares. The rest of it comes from various federal, state, and local subsidies. And what that means is, if you're a transit operator, your goal is not to please your customer, your transit rider. Instead, your goal is to please your funder, whether that's a state uh, uh, legislature or a city council that's giving you money, or uh, uh, the federal government who, who passes out transit grants. Uh, your goal is to please the funders, not the users. And so oftentimes you do things that do not make sense from a transit or transportation viewpoint. Instead, they only make sense from a viewpoint of a bureaucracy that's trying to get more and more money. Transit subsidies today are, are on the order of about $40 billion a year. 
as you can see from this graph, transit subsidies, since uh, as long as far back as we can go, uh, are greater than, have been always been greater than highway subsidies. There are highway subsidies. I think we should get rid of highway subsidies too, but it's important to recognize that highways carry about, about 100 times as many people, as many passenger miles a year, as transit does. Highways also carry an enormous amount of freight, about 25%, a little more than 25% of all ton miles of freight in this country are shipped on the highway. So highways are doing double duty. They're moving lots of people. They're getting some subsidies, which, which we should get rid of, but uh, transit subsidies are much greater, uh, especially when you count them on a per-passenger mile basis. Now, there's three important reasons. There are several more, but there's three important reasons why transit has become so unproductive under government ownership. One reason is, instead of trying to serve customers, they're trying to serve taxpayers. So this is a map uh, showing the transit tax base for uh, Portland's transit agency, Portland, Oregon's transit agency. The customers are basically mostly in this central area, but the tax base goes way out to all of these distant suburbs, many of which are very low density. And by going out and serving these uh, and taking taxes from these low density suburbs, the, the transit agency is obligated to provide transit service to these low-density suburbs, which is very costly. And since many of the, most of the people in these suburbs have three cars in every garage, they're not really all that inclined to ride transit. So uh, a second problem is that the, they end up buying big buses, so the buses run empty. The number of people riding those buses has steadily declined. So that today, the average transit bus, which has 40 seats in it and more room for people standing, carries an average of about 11 people, and that's been declining. The latest policy initiative on the part of transit agencies is not to tailor buses to the, their customers by getting smaller, more fuel-efficient buses. Instead, it's to buy more expensive, gigantic buses that use biofuels or hybrid electric or something like that but they are very, very expensive. They tend to cost two to three times as much per bus as a regular diesel-powered bus. Uh, and, and then they can claim we're, we're green, but we're green, we're running empty buses that are greener than the, than the buses we used to run around that were nearly empty. A second cause of, of a loss of transit productivity has been uh, the willingness of governments to cave in to transit unions. Uh, I don't know if anybody can catch the reference in this slide, but we can talk about it later if you want to, the, the pop culture reference. But basically, uh, transit, if you're on a transit board, you're politically appointed, uh, you're only going to be there for a short time, and so you're going to be willing to uh, grant the transit union a whole lot of benefits and, and high pay uh, because it's easier doing that than to have them go out on strike on your watch. And even though it means that in, in the next 20 years, taxpayers are going to be on the hook for paying huge amounts of money, uh, it's not a problem for you because you're only going to be there for four years. Uh, so we see things like the, the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority has over uh, 8,000 employees who earn more than $100,000 a year, including a Long Island Railroad conductor who earned $239,000 a year. 
The highest paid city employee in Madison, Wisconsin, is a bus driver who earned $160,000 last year. Uh, we can go across the country and, and see uh, lots and lots of people getting paid lots of money, and the upfront pay is only part of it. Uh, they also get huge health care benefits and pension benefits, much of which are unfunded liabilities on the transit agency's uh, uh, balance sheets. Now, this just shows unfunded liabilities as a share of operating costs. Portland is especially high. Portland benefits package is actually about 120% of payroll. So for every dollar they pay a transit employee, they pay $1.20 in health care and pension benefits. Uh, the, the transit employees are going to go out on strike. They've been uh, uh, picketing because the transit agency is beginning to say, wait a minute, we can't afford to do this anymore. Some transit employees might actually have to pay into their own pension funds in the future. A third reason why transit, agents, transit has become so unproductive under government ownership is that uh, government ownership has encouraged transit agencies to, in, to in what they call invest in high-cost transit when low-cost transit will do. Uh, light rail, for example, is less productive than a bus. It's far more expensive. A light rail line can move fewer people per hour than a bus line. Uh, it's slow. The average speed of light rail in this country is about 18 to 20 miles an hour. Uh, it's not a good form of transportation. It makes sense nowhere, and yet we see cities all over the country falling all over themselves to get federal grants to build light rail. Once you build one light rail line, as Denver did, uh, you can see the line to the south was the first line they built, uh, then you have to build lines into every community in your region. Denver has an excellent bus rapid transit line, the green line that goes to uh, Boulder, but it's not enough for Boulder to have the best transit in the region. They have to have a rail line just like everybody else because that's part of the ego trip of being a city official. If Aurora gets a rail line, if Golden gets a rail line, then Boulder has to have a rail line too. So they're going to build that orange rail line to Boulder and on to Longmont, which is predicted by the transit agency itself to cost $64 per rider. Every time somebody gets on, taxpayers are going to have to pay $64. Extre extremely cost inefficient, uh, and yet uh, they want to do it anyway. It's because of the politics. A major problem when you invest in high-cost transit is you end up having to cut back on your efficient bus transit. And so we can look at transit ridership in Atlanta and see that although they've been expanding their rail system continually since they first started building it in the late 1970s, and I'm afraid the published data only goes back to 1982, uh, even though they've been expanding their rail system, total transit ridership has been flat because as rail ridership goes up, bus ridership has gone down, and there's a very good reason for that. Although the population of Atlanta since about 1980 has grown by uh, almost 200 percent, uh, the uh, amount of money invested in buses in has increased by about 8 percent. Uh, they have not kept up with uh, the population, and so bus ridership is doing very poorly. This uh, has led to huge amounts of debt as uh, cities build rail transit. Uh, this is, shows debt service as a percentage of fares, which is just one way of looking at it. Uh, you can see in most cases uh, the annual debt service of rail cities out 
uh, outweighs the actual fares they collect. That's just debt service. That doesn't count the operating costs or the cost of maintenance or anything else. It's just debt service uh, on the rail lines. Transit agencies that, that run buses usually do not have to go into debt. Uh, you can buy buses off the shelf cheap, uh, but transit agencies that build rail almost always go heavily into debt. The uh, uh, Federal Transit Administration recently published what's called the State of Good Repair Assessment, which estimated that the transit agencies across the country have a $78 billion backlog of maintenance. Maintenance works that needs, needs to be done, but they aren't doing and the report also found that the amount of money being spent each year on maintenance is less than the amount necessary to keep the systems in the state of poor repair that they're already in. And so the transit systems uh, maintenance levels are declining. Uh, we've heard a lot about infrastructure and, and bridges and, and highways that are crumbling. But the truth is that the number of structurally deficient highway bridges has been steadily declining since 1990 even though the number of, total number of highway bridges is growing. Meanwhile, and also uh, other measures of highways, such as pavement smoothness, have been improving, showing that paying for things out of user fees rather than tax dollars, and most of our highways are paid for out of user fees, uh, is a good way of going about it. Uh, it. They can prevent any kind of serious infrastructure crisis. But this, which is, shows part of the Chicago L, the Chicago uh, CTA, uh, shows that uh, a lot of transit agencies have huge infrastructure problems, and they're getting worse. This led the Obama administration's appointee in charge of the trans Federal Transit Administration, the Peter Rogoff, to say, uh, why are transit agencies coming to us and asking for more money for rail when they can't afford to maintain what they've got? Uh, he pointed out that paint is cheaper than trains. He said to transit agencies, just take your bus paint it a special color, call it special, and more people will ride it. Now, I thought, I thought that was just hyperbola. And uh, this happens to be a bus in Eugene, Oregon, and I, I, I scoffed at this bus when they started it. They spent $25 million building a, an exclusive bus route. They built it so poorly that the bus actually does, goes no faster on the exclusive bus route than it did on the city streets before. Uh, but they bought this fancy new bus, and they got a 120% increase in bus ridership. 120%. I defy you to find a single billion-dollar rail line that's been built anywhere that generated a 120% increase in, in ridership. Now, what they don't tell you is that this bus was free, and all the other buses cost money. So that's partly why they got a 120% increase in ridership, but that's a, a viable tactic, too, offering free service. It's a lot cheaper than building a rail line. Now, even though 99% of American transit is public, we still have some examples of private transit uh, that are very successful. Uh, one is in uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, there's a, what's called the Atlantic City Jitney, which operates uh, between hotels and, and casinos and restaurants and uh, uh, the, the New Jersey Transit train station, uh, most, uh, mostly charging about $1.50 a ride. Uh, each of the buses are individually owned by their operators. Uh, you get on and off when you want. They provide 24-hour-a-day service, uh, and it's entirely uh, unsubsidized. You won't find it in the federal government's national transit database because that the database only has subsidized transit. In Puerto Rico, 
uh, we have what are called publicos, which are privately owned buses that, that roam around Puerto Rico, uh, pick people up, drop them off. Uh, it's entirely unsubsidized. There is subsidized government-owned transit in Puerto Rico, but the publicos carry more passengers and more passenger miles than all the public transit agencies, rail and bus, in Puerto Rico. Now, most cities in America, in, in, the, in the 50 states, have uh, what are called super shuttles or other airport shuttles. They're only allowed to pick you up and take you to the airport or take you from the airport to uh, your destination. They're not allowed to take you, say, to downtown or to uh, the stadium or anything like that. Uh, but if we could free them up, uh, they would be a form of private transit that could be very successful. Uh, Houston is one city that does not forbid uh, Jitney-type sh shuttle service, and a woman named uh, Lauren Barash started what, what she called the Washington Wave, which is a Washington Avenue uh, Jitney shuttle service, but she's now serving all kinds of other uh, uh, streets in, in, uh, in Houston, and it looks like that's going to be successful. Uh, in New York, amazingly, uh, a private uh, entrepreneur started what's called the New York Waterway System. Uh, he started uh, with one ferry going across uh, from uh, uh, midtown Manhattan to New Jersey and ended up with a whole network of ferry lines with, I think, 10 ports on the New Jersey side, four ports on the, on the Manhattan side, uh, accepted some subsidies after 911 to help compensate for the destruction of the PATH trains between New Jersey and, and the World Trade Center. Uh, but otherwise, has been almost entirely unsubsidized. Once you get to Manhattan, you can get on his buses and take the buses to just about anywhere in Midtown or Downtown Manhattan uh, as a part of your ferry fare. Uh, and uh, no public transit agency thought ferries would go anywhere, so it took a private entrepreneur to make it work, and it's very successful. Uh, Clayton County, Georgia, is an example of a place that cut its transit service because of the recent recession. It it had a transit service into Atlanta called the C-Tran. They cut the budget 100%. Uh, they just eliminated it. And lo and behold, within months, a private operator bought a bunch of buses and is now replicating that service. They call themselves Quick Transit. They charge a little more. Instead of charging a dollar, they charge $3.50 a ride. But they're making it. They're, they've still got their website anyway. Now, there's a popular belief among the rail fans that... Uh, that uh, middle-class transit riders won't ride a bus. They, won't, they demand a train. Well, tell that to the Hampton Jitney Company, which takes people from Manhattan to the Hamptons uh, in luxury buses with, with uh, three-across seating instead of four-across and galleys in the back uh, and free Wi-Fi wi included. Uh, and they're doing very well. They're, I think they're like 30 years old. They've been uh, operating uh, very successfully. And then uh, for intercity bus or travel, we have a resurgent of intercity buses. Uh, if you want to take the Amtrak's Acela from here to New York, it's $155. If you want to take the uh, Amtrak's regular trains, it's about $70. If you take mega bus or bolt bus, it's about $15. If you make your reservations far enough in advance, it's only a dollar. The interesting thing is that Urban buses, government-owned buses, are among the least energy-efficient land-based transportation vehicles we have in this country, uh, spending more than 4,000 BTUs per passenger mile. Intercity buses are among the most energy-efficient vehicles because they go where people want to go, not where the taxpayers are.
Now, if you're concerned that privatization would lead to a cut in service for low-income people, I don't think it would, but if you're concerned about that, then the states can give people transportation coupons or transportation stamps, just like they give people food stamps. And uh, low-income people could use those transportation coupons for buses or Amtrak or airlines. Maybe they could even use them to buy gasoline for their cars so they can get to work uh, at a reasonable hour. I think privatization would lead to a, a proliferation of transit models. We'd see a lot more innovation. We'd see a lot more low-cost transit. And transit riders would be better off, and taxpayers would save about $40 billion a year. Thank you very much. A very brave man named Bill Millar is going to uh, respond <laughs> to this issue. Uh, Bill has been president of the American Public Transportation Association since 1996. Prior to APTA, um, Bill served as the executive director of the Port Authority of Allegheny County, the principal transport operator, uh, transit operator in Pittsburgh um, for 16 years. He has won uh, a number of awards, including the Transportation Research Board's W.N. Carey Jr. Distinguished Service Award in 1999, the Patterson Partnership Award from the Intermodal Passenger Institute in 2001, and Railway Ages Graham Clater Award in 2006. He has a B.A. from Northwestern and an M.A. in uh, Transportation Planning from the University of Iowa. He lives in Falls Church, Virginia, and commutes to work on Metrorail. Bill? It's me. Good. <laughs> Randall, I'm so tempted to say, why don't you tell us how you really feel? But anyhow, uh, congratulations on your presentation there. Uh, you've, and uh, please use the APTA data anytime, and we'll uh, be um, glad to share it with you uh, as well. So uh, I do appreciate that you use it. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and it's a pleasure uh, to be with you. Um, I'm hesitating as to how far I should tell you about my background since it includes running a public transit system, taking a strike to try to keep the costs in line, uh, and a whole host of other experiences that I will be drawing on today uh, as, I, uh, as I speak. Well, Mr. O'Toole has been writing uh, about this topic, what, 15 years, something like that, 15 years, and he has written on this topic many, many times. And while he, uh, to his credit, updates his data as, he, as it becomes available, his fundamental message remains the same. And you can read what he wrote in 1997, and it's essentially uh, the same thing that he has uh, told you today. Now, I have three general concerns about the way he presents his data and makes his case, uh, and, uh, and then I have some very specific examples. Uh, which, luckily enough, just happened to draw on the same database that, uh, that he uses there. First, uh, he always starts with an ideology. Uh, it's an ideology that uh, government ownership is always bad. 
He does not ever acknowledge that public transportation is not a business taken over by government. It is a public service which the public supports and uh, supports uh, repeatedly. But he starts with an ideology and then chooses data that support his ideological conclusion, which he's reached before he's done his research. Now, government is neither good nor bad. We could argue over silly things government has done, and we could argue over great things government has done, and at the end of the day, we'd have had a good argument uh, about it uh, on that. But if you think about it in a free society, government is the way we make public decisions. It's the way we make decisions about public goods that we're going to invest in, what, uh, what uh, needs we're going to address, uh, what uh, needs we choose not to address. So... That starting with ideology is, is where we begin to diverge from each other. Second, he almost always, and did it again today, looks only at costs, rarely looks at the benefits, and when he does look at the benefits, uh, it's often skewed uh, as, and doesn't present a complete uh, picture. In fact, benefits in public transportation, uh, of public transportation investment, as I will describe, are substantial. Uh, are well-known, well-documented, and uh, generally well-accepted. Third, he treats transit like somehow we operate in a vacuum. Uh, he ignores the subsidies, policies, investments that are rampant through, for the most part, rampant throughout all of transportation, um, and uh, really doesn't examine the factors that uh, caused the private market uh, to fail when it comes to most public transportation. I'll certainly grant there are many individual cases, perhaps the ones he showed up there are perfect examples of, of exceptional cases, but just as we all go to Disney World and we enjoy riding on the monorail, we don't come home and advocate for a monorail in every community. Uh, there are very specialized cases where totally unsubsidized uh, transportation will work, and we ought to take advantage of that whenever we can. I mean, there's no reason to spend public money if the private sector will, uh, in fact, uh, do it. Well, overall, Mr. Ortiz paints, I think, a picture of a dying industry that is uh, somehow being kept alive for no good reason uh, by government subsidies. Uh, let me share some thoughts with you that I think uh, would suggest that's not a correct set of assumptions there. First, Americans are using transit. They're using it in record levels for modern times. Yes, the peak use of transit was in the 40s. Uh, there was a little thing, World War II, I think it was called, uh, that uh, skewed a lot of the historic data. But for modern times, uh, we're using it in record levels over 10 billion times uh, last year. The public generally supports the investments that are in public transit, uh, and I won't uh, dazzle you with a host of surveys that show people are willing to, to or saying they're willing to uh, spend, uh, they are saying that they are willing to support public transit by rates of 70, 75, 80 percent, because I think we'd all agree that uh, you can probably ask questions to get uh, the answer that you want. So I'll point to something else, elections. Elections like we had last Tuesday, where Americans have to go into the voting booth and make a choice. And they can choose to say yes to transit ballot initiatives, or they can choose to say no to transit ballot initiatives. Last Tuesday, where arguably we had a big wave election, that's what all the pundits tell us, we had big change, we threw out the incumbents, 
Well, there was one incumbent who did very well. 73% of the ballot initiatives that were on the ballot for voters to raise their own taxes, extend a tax that was going to expire, sell bonds that have to be paid by tax purposes and related issues to public transportation. We won 73% of those those elections on that change day, on that day when there were many incumbents who did not make it back to Washington. By the way, that 73% was a higher percentage than the 10-year average. We win 70% of those over the past 10 years. Uh, And by the way, that number for transit uh, is about twice as high as the voters approve for school levies, park levies, library levies. So apparently the voter is smart enough to get it, that there is something of value here that they want to invest in, and when they have a chance, uh, they generally say yes. Now, on a typical weekday, Americans will board uh, transit buses, about 35 buses and rail, will board transit about 35 million times. Not an inconsequential uh, number. Randall would quickly add, and he'd be right, that that's about 14, 15 million people, because people tend to go somewhere and come back somewhere. But if you ask the question a little different way, some research a few years ago done by the American Automobile Association, not usually one thought of as in transit's pocket, uh, and APTA working together, uh, found that if you ask the question about have Americans used public transit in the last year, the number comes out to be about 26% of Americans. Over 80 million Americans used transit last year. Now, maybe it was only once the day their car was in the shop and they absolutely needed transit, uh, but they did use it. So I think many, many Americans are firmly uh, uh, understanding of what transit is, uh, and, uh, and when asked about it, uh, tend to support it uh, on that. So transit is alive and kicking. It's not a dying industry. It's part of the nation's comprehensive transportation network that's helped give America a competitive advantage for more than 100 years. So our task today is to discuss the roles of the federal government and the private sector in public transit. Now, let me be clear about something. I run a trade association. I have over 1,500 members from all over the country. Uh, more than 60% of those are for-profit private sector businesses. So, uh, again, ours is not an industry that is solely dominated by two or three big transit systems that are publicly owned. Um, and virtually all the major uh, transit management companies uh, that would do the privatization that, uh, that Mr. O'Toole advocates are, in fact, my members. So we take positions based uh, with a full understanding of what the private sector can do, can't do, what the public sector can do, can't do. Now, I think we ought to talk about a little bit about history here before we get too much uh, further. I think it's useful to examine the role of federal, the federal role when it comes to transportation. And it's important to realize that the federal government has been involved in transportation since literally the founding of the republic. Uh, and literally, one can go in the Constitution and find reference to the uh, maintenance of uh, post roads, or shortly after the uh, the Republic was founded, uh, the development of the national of the national road, the transcontinental railroads, uh, the uh, air network uh, in uh, beginning in 1918, the civil uh, aviation in 1926, the modern interstate highway system in 1956. But one must remember that the modern interstate 
highway system actually began with the creation of a federal office of road inquiry back in uh, 1893, so a long time in coming. And really, the first federal aid interstate highway system was in the 20s. Well, public transportation, uh, Randall is quite right, the modern role of federal involvement Use, use 1964. It's as good a date as any. We could argue other dates, but that's a good date. Um, but um, there have been federal policies that have affected uh, transit um, uh, all along. Now, back when that Office of Road Inquiry was created in 1893, of course, public transit uh, in America everywhere was privately owned, privately operated, uh, paying taxes to the degree that it uh, made profit, although often paid franchise fees and other things in lieu of taxes. Uh, indeed, much of urban America got its electricity because the local power company, which owned the trolley company, had surplus electricity to sell. Indeed, many communities uh, uh, grew literally by following the trolley wire. So a lot of cities built uh, that way. Now, in the ensuing three decades, first three decades of this, uh, uh, of this past uh, century, the Congress and many states put very important pieces of legislation in place that really set America on the road to using roads uh, and taking America uh, off uh, the road to using public transit, or in those days, the track to using public transit. Uh, and it was uh, because of those acts and subsequent ones uh, that a great many private sector companies uh, ultimately had to exit the business. Certainly another example was the Public Utility Act of 1935, which required certain divestitures of the uh, power companies that had been operating uh, transit. Certainly the Federal Aid Highway Acts beginning in 1916. All these things had a role. It's not enough to look at just the federal role, certainly state at the state level, franchise laws, uh, state uh, investments in road networks, development of highway trust funds, things of that sort that shut out transit uh, were important here as well. Local government requiring restricting licenses, holding down the ability of the private carriers to raise the fares when they needed to for business reasons, and a whole host of other things. So there are certainly lots of government actions at all levels uh, that, uh, that had an impact here, and it was hardly the fact that in 1964 the federal government for the first time began to seriously think about investing in public transit. In fact, by the late 1950s, really, as a result of all this, many communities, and indeed the nation as a whole, really faced a choice. And the choice was, do we let these privately provided public transit service uh, uh, go out of business? Uh, because contrary to what the impression is Randall's left you, most were not making large amounts of money. Most were not making enough money to reinvest in their own capital. And indeed, some of the, uh, uh, the problem of deferred maintenance is not new. Most of the private carriers, to help make a go of it, cut their maintenance way back. So there was a choice for the country, let it die, let it go out of business, who weeped for the buggy whip manufacturers, um, and instead invest in public transportation uh, for agreed upon goals. Now it was this latter choice that was made in most of the major communities and ultimately by the country, and that really got us to our modern program. Now, so I would expect, although I don't know, that Randall would agree with at least some of the history I've told you there, at least the basic fact structure of it, if not the conclusions I draw. Uh, but uh, I think well, there are many things we can agree on. I mean, Americans want the freedom to choose for themselves. They want to live where they want to live. They don't want to be told how to travel. And they want to go uh, where and when they want to go. 
I think most people, particularly right now with the economic downturn, would agree that we ought to be investing in things uh, that help preserve jobs, create jobs, that help build a competitive economy, help uh, keep our economy competitive uh, uh, internationally. Uh, we must also, everyone would agree, strengthen our national security. Of course, since 9-11, for most Americans, national security has a whole different idea to it than just how much money is in the Defense Department budget or how many troops we have in the military, as important as those things are. Also, I think most people today would agree that we need to get off uh, foreign energy sources, that it's important uh, that we uh, have choices. Well, on the issue, issue of choices uh, and where we should go with policy, um, the Congress uh, in 2005 created two federally chartered uh, commissions. Um, I see and one of them, the National Surface Transportation Policy and Revenue Study Commission, did look at this issue, and here's just a few quotes from their uh, study. Uh, uh, basically, uh, their conclusion is that uh, the success of our economy uh, rests uh, on uh, a good transportation system directly tied to infrastructure uh, development, uh, that that had to be broad in its nature. It was highways, it was railroads, it was urban public transit, it was a whole host of other uh, activities. Uh, and I see Jack Schenendorf is in the audience. He was vice chair of that uh, uh, committee. Uh, and, uh, and so, Jack, thank you very much for your hard work. Now, the report goes on to cite the need for expansion. We forget that as a growing nation, and we are a growing nation with a growing economy, maybe a little slow right now, but it'll come back, uh, we've got to make sure that our transportation network and choices can fit us uh, for the future. So those are the kinds of things that have been looked at, and I don't think there's any disagreement. Now, public transit is a part of that. Now, let's, as, as uh, Randall said, and he's quite right, most trips in America that get measured, we don't measure all trips in America, most trips in America that get measured are made uh, in some form of highway mode. But that doesn't mean everybody wants only one choice. And in a free society, we have, uh, uh, we, we, and in a, in a democracy, uh, that's a fair game to talk about what is the right mix there. Now, some people, let me get rid of that. I did it. Good. Um, some people uh, will walk, some will ride a bike, some will take public transit, but certainly the majority will take a car uh, if they can. It shouldn't be any surprise that given the investment pattern, uh, which I guess the first disagreement I have with Randall, I don't understand where he got the data on highway spending because it's much. the real numbers are much different than what he showed there. Uh, but we'll talk about that later, I guess. Um, despite the fact that we vastly oversubsidize the highway network and uh, what goes on it, despite the fact that we steer through tax law and other things, um, uh, uh, give, have allowed the network to develop quite extensively, despite all that, transit growth over the last 15 years or so has actually been faster than highway growth. Now, still, the majority of trips are by highway. Don't, don't hear me wrong here. Um, in fact, the 31% growth in public transit versus 21% in VMT on our net, highway network and 15% of the population. So it says to me, when you take that with the election data, again, Americans aren't stupid. They, when you give them a decent choice, uh, they will take uh, that choice. Now... The choice uh, can be a lot of different things. Certainly it can be rail. Certainly it can be uh, bus rapid transit. Uh, I opened uh, the first true bus rapid transit in America back in the late 70s uh, in Pittsburgh. Only we called it 
rapid transit by bus, I think. I think we got our B out of place in there. So I am fully familiar with what it can do and what it can't do and where it is attractive and where it may be less so. I suspect, Mr. Chair, I must be getting near the end of my time, so I'm going to, it's feeling that way. I don't know if it is that way. So let me move along to a couple of things. Uh, when we invest in something like public transit, we're buying a public good. That good might be clean air, for example. It is not something without value. Our friends at the American Lung Association in their annual air report last year said vehicle emissions are still a major source of air pollution. Now, all of us know over the years the tailpipe emissions have improved, again, because of government regulation, not because of anything the market did uh, in it. Uh, and, uh, and yet still the major uh, organization that looks at these issues is still calling for further reductions. Well, technology will take us so far. Some of that uh, new technology that Randall scorned there at the end will help lead us to what the ultimate solutions will be there, uh, but we need to do it. A um, medical report out of the New England Journal of Medicine last year found that reductions in exposure to vehicle pollution have been associated with longer lifespans for residents in the 51 uh, metropolitan areas. So again, having some choice, regulating the tailpipe, doing all those things make a difference. Of course, the greatest public, one of the greatest public health concerns we have is the number of people we kill every year on the roads. This year, we were feeling pretty good because we was announced what? We killed only 33,800 people last year. And that is good compared to the 43,500 we carry, we killed a few years uh, before, but it's a far cry from zero. And virtually none of the cost of those injuries, which amount now to about 2.4 million injuries a year on the road, virtually none of that shows up in the transportation budget, but it sure shows up in our health care budget to the tune of, I believe the number is about $230 billion a year that are there. So when we start talking about subsidies and where they go, we've got to be very careful uh, that we look uh, to the total range of things uh, that are there. As far as uh, accidents go, uh, public transit, whether it's rail transit, whether it's buses, uh, are by far and away uh, the safest way to travel. Uh, you are something like uh, 28 times less likely to die riding a bus than you are driving your car, uh, 71 times less likely to die riding on a rail transit uh, 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 car uh, than driving. So if these costs, if it was just your life and you want to take the risk, that's fine, but it it goes into so many other places. It's part of urban congestion costs. It's part of health care costs. It's part of so many other costs uh, that uh, we've faced. Let's turn a little more now to some of the private sector and the direct economic benefits of transit. Uh, first, let's be clear, at least 76% of the money that gets invested in public transit immediately goes into the private sector because it's through contracts of one sort and another and other things like that. That doesn't even begin to count what happens to the rounds of effects uh, of expenditures. Um, our uh, uh, Glenn Weisbrod, whom many of you may know, a well-respected economist, has examined public transit and said that the economic returns on every dollar that the public invests in public transit uh, are just slightly below $4 per dollar. I think it's something like 3.5 or 6, something like that investment. I wish I could tell you my 401k was bringing me back three times what I'm putting into it. It isn't right now. Um, he also looked at, well, where does this investment go? We talk about it a, a public investment like somehow it uh, just 
you know, vanishes. Well, it's not true. A billion dollars of public investment generates or supports about 36,000 jobs. Then you get the rounds of effect. You get the four-to-one return. So in essence, an investment in public transit is a leveraged investment. Now, certainly that would also be true to some degree in highways and other things we could spend it on. But when you look at the work further, transit seems to have a little more uh, return on that leverage than many other ways. Um, we could go on and on and on, and I don't intend to, uh, about the details of what's in Randall's uh, report there. Uh, again, what my experience has been with his uh, work is he cherry-picks the data. So, there, so I doubt there's any data that's incorrect in his report. There may, he may have made a mistake, but I doubt it, because he's very careful about it, but he doesn't present the whole picture. So he uh, uh, goes on at great length about uh, transit wages and in other writings how it's all been out of control and all the rest. Well, um, let's see. Did I get... What do I got to do to get this up here? I went... Oh, I went the wrong way. Okay. So I've got my accidents there. Uh, this is some data uh, from a company called Greg Dash and or, or John Dash and Associates. Dates back to 1990 on the left-hand side, and it compares the top line basically is U.S. private sector wages. The bottom line, and this is all inflation adjusted. The bottom line uh, are transit wages. Now you could certainly make the argument back in the 90s. And if my memory serves me correctly, you could even make the case more strongly in the 80s that uh, transit wages were rising more rapidly than private sector. You can't make that case anymore, and you haven't been able to make that case uh, since the mid-90s. Now, we could go on and we can draw similar charts for uh, the uh, benefits, the health care, uh, I don't know where Randall got the notion that transit workers don't pay for their uh, portion of their health care. They do. That was the tradition in all of industry, and, and transit is no uh, exception uh, in that uh, regard. So I think we need to look at a broader picture when we're examining things like that. Um, he has in his paper discussion that he attributes uh, to some other authors about the energy efficiency of transit, and he makes a statement something about how uh, when you add the total life cycle cost of transit uh, and infrastructure cost of transit energy consumption, it rises faster than highways. Well, that's, that may be a true statement, but it's not a relevant statement. When you look at using uh, the, the ridership as it is today, and you look across and you look at indirect uh, energy, the life cycle cost of energy, plus the fuel cost is in the blue, uh, what you find... Uh, and I think Randall did say this, peak hour buses, they are the most efficient thing. They're well loaded with people and they, they do a good service for us. But then right behind it is high speed rail, is uh, BART, is commuter rail, is light rail. Uh, then you even get some of the major uh, airplanes that fit in there next, some more light rail. And then you get to autos and sedans and SUVs and pickup trucks. And then the worst one is off-peak bus. But there isn't anybody who's saying you're providing off-peak bus because of energy efficiency. You're providing off-peak bus for cl clearly social agenda and social reasons, uh, not uh, for energy in this thing. So, again, I guess we could compare our two charts and figure out where one of us went wrong. But uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think it's important to look at the whole picture. He talks about um, productivity per transit worker, cost of transit trip. Uh, he cites in his paper, for example, that since 1964, 
through 19, 2008, uh, the cost per transit trip went up 192%. If we did our math right, that's 2.46% compounded per year. Well, I can play the same game, too. Take the years immediately uh, before the 1964 date. Remember, 1964 is the date he uses to declare government involvement in transit. Take 17 years before that, and it grew by over 4% compounded. So when it was apparently in the private sector, it was growing by 4%, all inflation adjusted. When it, when it was in the public sector, we cut it uh, by 50%, and it, it grew uh, 246 So, again, I'm not sure what all this data means. I think what it really says is you've got to sharpen your question carefully, make sure your data set uh, is appropriate to what you're trying to say. Same thing goes for his uh, chart about the number of... Uh, Trips per transit employee, 1931 compared to 2008. We have, you don't have the common data set there. In 1931, we didn't have commuter rail figured out in there. Commuter rail trips are 23 miles long, so that right there is going to uh, change things. We didn't have paratransit uh, in there. Today, almost 25% of the workers in public transportation are involved in paratransit. Paratransit is very labor-intensive, very short trips, and very time-consuming trips, so it should be no wonder that it falls. In fact, just an interesting tidbit of fact, there was no word paratransit in 1931. It hadn't been invented yet uh, on that thing. And it goes uh, on and on and on. Um, you know, I think you get the point here. Uh, whether you're listening to me or to him, you got to uh, be careful about the data you're looking at. Let me suggest a couple things. We have left a very brief summary of many of the points that I've made here today. I would encourage you that uh, if you're interested in getting additional information, you might uh, go to the website of the Victoria Policy uh, Institute. Uh, they have uh, uh, put together a critique of uh, Randall's paper and gets much further into all this data uh, that I'm talking about here. And for those of you that uh, come from the general conservative side of thing and just wonder if I'm some crazy wide-eyed liberal from the Midwest, um, here's a compilation of work done by certainly uh, the well-known and late uh, uh, conservative leader Paul Weirich and his colleague Bill Lynn, which again go through all these issues. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll look forward to your questions and hopefully some answers. Thanks. I will ask each of our speakers one question, hope to get a response, and then we'll open it up for general questions and answers, uh, questions from the audience and answers by our speakers. Randy. Um, Many employers, including Cato, provide uh, free parking to their employees. That's, in effect, a subsidy for driving to work rather than doing something else, and that probably contributes to a reduction of the demand for transit. Now, what, if anything, should be done about that? Well, many employees, employers, including Cato, also provide free transit impasses for employ employees, and that's, in effect, a subsidy to transit. Uh, I think the issue about parking is that uh, employers have a choice. They can locate downtown where parking is expensive, uh, and then they can make their employees pay, and their employees might say, well, that's a cut into my pay, and so uh, you're going to have to pay me more for it, uh, or they can give them free parking and pay them a little less, or they can locate out in the suburbs. 
and maybe for uh, uh, Washington, D.C., a lot of groups don't want to be in the suburbs. They want to be close to Capitol Hill. But for, in a lot of cities, if you're a manufacturer, if you're an office or whatever, it doesn't, it's not really important for you to be in the city. Locating out in the suburbs uh, uh, saves you a lot of money. It saves your employees money on parking. It often saves them money on, on commuting because it costs less to commute when you don't have to drive in, in, in as much congestion. And so by offering low-cost uh, parking, uh, we're actually not so much subsidizing the automobile as we are subsidizing downtowns. And that's really the issue when you see debates over parking is uh, should we be subsidizing downtowns or should we, we be encouraging more employers to move out to the suburbs uh, where parking is cheaper? Should uh, the employer costs of providing free parking or transit uh, subsidies, for that matter, be included in taxable income? Well, I think what you're asking is should they be included as a, a taxable expense when, when the employer decides, uh, you know, writes out their taxes, is that an expense? Can they write that off? And historically, uh, uh, parking has been a write-off, but transit passes haven't been, and now uh, there, I believe the legislation has been passed that you can write off transit passes, but uh, it's an expense. It's an employee expense. So sure, they should be uh, written off, but uh, uh, I see that as being fairly marginal. I don't think it's really making that much of a difference as to whether people choose to ride transit or drive. Uh, the fact is uh, transportation uh, technologies change when a new technology is faster, uh, more convenient, or, or less expensive than the old technology, usually all three. And when we see new technologies come in and replace old technologies, it's because they're, very, uh, they're faster, more convenient, and less expensive. And you compare transit with automobiles, the only way you can make transit compete with automobiles is first to heavily subsidize the transit so that it is some semblance of being about the same price. Second, really increase urban congestion so that people can't get there fast by car. Uh, and uh, that way it makes transit almost as convenient uh, and almost as fast as cars. Still, it's very marginal. Uh, you look at Washington, D.C., where uh, maybe 15% of workers in the, in the urban area are taking transit to work, but only about 3 or 4% of all travel, passenger travel in the urban areas by transit. That's not a significant amount. We're just capturing those marginal people who are going to downtowns uh, where, where it's convenient for them. Uh, if, the, if the goal is to get people out of their car, uh, transit is not the solution. I think it's, that's the wrong goal. The real goal should be to make cars cleaner and more energy efficient, not to get people out of their cars. Uh, Bill, um Whatever the case for local governments, including maybe metropolitan areas, subsidizing local transit, what is the case for federal taxpayers to subsidize local transit? Why should, why should people in Washington or um, subsidize transit in Pittsburgh? Uh, because the people in Washington benefit from an efficient economy in Pittsburgh. Fact of the matter is the majority of the American economy is created and sustained in the major urban areas of America. That is a great benefit to all Americans, even if you live on top of a mountain in Oregon. Uh, so it isn't like you can take a small piece. We have a national economy. 
Yes, we can look at pieces of it, sub-regional and state and other things, but we have fundamentally a national economy. Now, uh, we should invest in transit, and we should invest, I would argue, in roads and other things, uh, when the benefits exceed the costs. Uh, and uh, with the uh, tip of the iceberg that I presented here, uh, and certainly uh, on our website is a great deal more information uh, in whatever category you want to talk about. You want to talk about the economy and the benefits in transit out, outweigh the costs. You want to talk about the environment, the benefits outweigh the costs. And the list goes on and on and on. Government should not be investing uh, in things where it doesn't get a good return in public transportation. It gets a very good return and therefore uh, is justified. The other reason is, uh, I tried to give the reason I took us down the history here is, I don't know how you untangle the subsidies. It's very nice to have a recommendation that nothing should be subsidized in transportation, but I don't know how you undo literally 225 years of history because uh, we got to where we are out of a whole series of policies uh, uh, and reductions. So if no other reason, you've got to subsidize transit as a defensive move against all the subsidies that have built uh, the highway network, the air network, and the other networks there. So I don't like that reason. I like the reason for benefits, uh, but they're both reasons. But the benefits accrue to local, the local people. Not true, sir. Well, well, uh, why, why do I benefit from public clean, transit in Pittsburgh? Clean air that originates in one metropolitan area drifts through the rural areas and into uh, another metropolitan area just as easily, for example. Uh, I, uh, I, in the economy, the fact that, uh, that there may be able to have, uh, through scale of agglomeration and other things like that, profitable headquarters in downtowns, which are not subsidized, by the way, but that's a whole other uh, uh, discussion here, uh, may have the manufacturing plant out in the rural area. How do you untie our economy? Our economy is a national economy. Many things affect that economy. Uh, and it is very, very difficult to say uh, that we're going to subsidize uh, a piece of our transportation system and we're not going to uh, uh, do another piece. Uh, Randall pointed out that, uh, in his mind, the early rationale for the uh, commuter uh, trains was they were interstate commerce. Well, part of the Constitution talks about the general welfare uh, as well. And finally, no state, no locality has to take the federal money. I mean, if they don't want to do these things, no one is holding a gun at their head and saying, take it. The electorate, I gave you the numbers. You know, on a day last Tuesday where quote-unquote, the bums were being thrown out, a whole new way was coming to town, those same voters approved 73% of the balloting issues where they got to raise their taxes, et cetera. So, I mean, I think, uh, I think there are many good reasons uh, for uh, funding transit, and the benefits outweigh the costs, and we should do it. Okay, questions from the audience. Here. Um, I'm Jack Schenendorf, uh, was vice chair of the National Surface Transportation Policy and Revenue Study Commission and was asked to um, just give a little bit of background and context. And I see our executive director, Susan Binder, was here. And um, so what I wanted to tell you was that, that commission was a bipartisan, independent commission that Congress set up to look at transportation needs over the next 50 years. We were looking forward. 
and, and to see what it is that we needed as a nation in order to be able to compete in today's global marketplace. And what we found is that we are truly at a critical crossroads now. Uh, we have had the, the luxury and, and to some degree have been complacent by having a brand-new interstate system that provided tremendous um, transportation benefits for this country, allowed our population to grow, our economy to grow. It was new. It didn't need much in the way of repair. We had our transit systems. We had uh, freight rail systems. And we, as a nation, benefited greatly over the last 30 years, 40 years from those systems. However, that, that has changed now. We basically have two major problems. One is the rehabilitation of the and reconstruction of our major facilities, our major highway systems, our major transit systems, because now they are beyond their design life. And then secondly, when you project out population growth and you project out economic growth, our nation's transportation system will be in gridlock. We will be unable to compete, and that is why the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, are all saying that we need to solve our transportation problems. So when we looked at how to do that, and we did the modeling for how to do that, what we found is that you have to significantly upgrade all of the modes of transportation. We have to have freight rail improved where it can have a greater market share. We have to have transit growing in every one of our major metropolitan areas. We need more highway capacity where there are bottlenecks. And the cost of doing that, if we're going to remain competitive, we found to be enormous. Today, we're spending $87 billion a year at the federal, state, local, and private sector on transportation infrastructure. Our estimates were that the minimum that we needed to spend was $220 billion a year, about half of that to keep our existing transportation in a state of good repair, and about half of it to provide a coordinated uh, increase in capacity amongst all the modes to serve the transportation needs of the future. Um, we looked at the federal role. We looked at the fact that Federal government's played a role in transportation dating back to the first Congress. The ninth act passed by the first Congress was a federal takeover of lighthouses, arguably a very local function, because Congress realized the importance of those lighthouses to interstate commerce and to our navigation. Sir, do you have a question? What, well, I was asked to make a comment, and I guess the comment is that this is a very that, that when you debate whether transit should be private. It's in the context of a much, much broader problem that we face as a nation. And what our study, and I think if you look at the other commission study, if you look at the Miller study, if you look at the Bipartisan Policy Center, we all came to fairly similar conclusions, and that is we need a major upgrading of all of our systems, including transit, and that the federal government has an important role in that. Here. I guess the question is, who should be doing that upgrading? Uh, and as of 1960, almost all transportation in this country was private and unsubsidized. And today, we're seeing this huge blurring between uh, uh, public and private, and we're seeing this huge blurring between who pays and who gets, who gets the benefits. 
1960, the people who got the benefits were the ones who paid for them. Today, uh, we don't know who's getting the benefits. There's all these nebulous benefits out there that supposedly people are getting, but we don't know who's getting the benefits. We just know that people are paying a lot more taxes to subsidize transportation than they were paying before. We see the freight railroads starting to accept federal dollars, which they had never done before, uh, to, to improve their their lines. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, we see the, the airlines being held uh, at the throat uh, to improve the, the air traffic control system because the federal government has a monopoly on that air traffic control system, whereas uh, a few dozen other countries have privatized air traffic control, and then the private sector can take it over. And although air traffic control is entirely paid for by the airlines, they can't improve it because the, the government is running it. And so we're seeing too much government and not enough private sector. We're seeing too much claims of nebulous benefits and not enough real benefits going to the people who are actually paying for our transportation. Right, question? Uh, uh, here. Excuse me. This is mostly for Mr. Millar. Um, I'm Chris Walker. I'm a local businessman. Yes, um, first of all, I don't believe under common econ economic definitions – Local transit, urban transit, is a public good. There's nothing more local than, uh, than that. Uh, your claims that if you spend a dollar in public transit, you get $4 in benefits is completely bogus. Uh, there's no evidence for any You've of You've done that study? Uh, well, I can tell you as, as a private business person, there are four-to-one returns available in any one sector of our economy from an investment. It ought to be privatized and the government ought to tax it. My well, again, on that point, I'll just – uh, the work I'm quoting is uh, Glenn Weisbrod, uh, an economics, uh, well-known transportation economics uh, professional in this area. He's not beholden to transit. He's able to calculate these for the air, for the uh, highway and everything. I mean, it's fine for you to sit there and assert that that's not true. I've got the studies. I've got the data. I'll be happy to share it with you. Well, that would be interesting. Brookings Institution did a study of urban rail systems in the U.S. and concluded that every single one of them was a net economic detriment to the area with the sole exception, perhaps, of BART, which sort of semi-broke even. But my point is this. When the public sector gets involved in subsidizing economic activity of whatever kind, it generally does a poor job of it. Uh, we don't invest well. I'll give you an example just from a local area and, and situations you'll understand. There have been studies of uh, suburban transit for heavy rail versus bus rapid transit. And the studies, which are all government studies, this is not privately funded, show that uh, bus rapid transit done properly is not only a 10 to 1 advantage over heavy rail, it's a 100 to 1 advantage over heavy rail. 100 to 1. That's the difference in cost-benefit ratios between the two. So which technology is our local government involved in with heavy government subsidies are doing? They're doing heavy rail in the suburbs. And the same situation is happening in San Francisco. Same thing with all these light rail projects all around the country. The reason that people don't use public transportation more often is that it takes too much time. The average point-to-point -point trip by public transit is twice as long, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, as, is twice as long as, as private vehicles. And as people get wealthier, as the country gets wealthier, there's no way the transit is ever going to overcome that disadvantage. So my question to you is this. If we're going to subsidize public transit somehow, shouldn't we do it on the demand side and not the supply side? as we do for food stamps and as we do for housing. Trying to, trying to subsidize the supply side of agri agriculture and housing has proved to be a disaster. 
uh, give people vouchers and then let the private sector provide whatever forms and modes of public transit it chooses to do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly voucher programs have been tried around the world. And again, for specialized cases, they seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, and so I'm not certainly opposed to using a voucher where that makes sense, where you're trying to target a specific subsidy to a specific person. Uh, I have no no difficulty uh, with that idea uh, at all. Do not lecture me on busways. I built them. I know the value of busways, and there are places where they work very well, and we should use those, but they're not the only place. Let me give you some uh, some. Uh, more data here just since you haven't had enough data today. We'll give you a little more data. This is uh, some work that tried, it's peer-reviewed work, research work. It's trying to take a look at, uh, at high-quality public transit, high-quality public transit being bus rapid transit, being light rail when it's well done, not when it's a streetcar stuck in the same traffic as everybody else, uh, commuter rail, things like that. And just say, well, what happens when you're able to compare those? The places that invest in the high-quality transit get 400% higher per capita transit uh, usage. They get an 887%. Again, I'm using averages, so we could fight about what communities are here and what aren't. 887% higher uh, transit commute uh, split. So apparently, when you improve the service, you draw more people uh, to it. So local plans uh, need to uh, reflect that. And then the list goes on. I won't bore you with the whole list. Now, uh, let's have a question. Let's have a question and not a statement. Uh, I'm Gabriel Roth. I have a question. Um, Mr. Miller, uh, as part of his very nice presentation, mentioned paratransit and... um, Mr. O'Toole showed us pictures of informal public transport in Houston. Uh, Many of these systems, in most places, these systems are not allowed by regulation. My question is this. Uh, Would would the speakers support federal subsidies for transport being made conditional on there being no restrictions on competition. In other words, if New York wants to receive a federal subsidy for its transit, there should be no restriction on informal public transport there. Well, you're again mixing apples and oranges. I mean, the decision to not allow um, the, what you've called, and I'll, I'll agree with you, informal transit, usually didn't come from the transit agency. It came usually from the private sector cab companies who don't wish to have the competition. Uh, and so uh, it's, I'm not quite sure why you'd put a condition on the transit agency for something that it doesn't control or have any part of. But, uh, but the general notion of less regulation, personally, that, that's music to my ears, generally. Questions over here? Uh, I just wanted to point out that Honolulu has the fourth highest per capita transit ridership in America, even though it's only the 54, 51st largest urban area. They're the only one that has absolutely no restriction on, on uh, informal transportation. There's no taxi cab medallion system, no kind of restriction at all. So there's a lot of private transit going on there as well. 
Uh, so there's some validity to the idea of saying, let's get rid of all these regulations, and we'd have to overcome the objections of the taxi industry. Ma'am, here. My name is Li Yang. I would like to have these uh, two panelists uh, to really discuss the problem. I know that private business have your merit and public transportation have your merit, but you didn't really discuss the problem. For instance, in a private and there may be transportation, they just subsidize the new development area. It's for developers' benefit. It's not for the urban area with uh, condensed uh, workers, and the worker received lower wage rate is not because uh, that is cheaper and that is uh, good for the private business. Instead, workers are exploited, and they, are long, they don't even have a good living wage. While uh, on the public sectors, I think you may mention the uh, general commerce, you may mention the uh, Good advisory research, the problem is those research are basically, in a sense, manipulated, selected by Chamber of Commerce or their advisory group. Um, now, this election, you can see, this election, you can see corporate money, they will obstruct some good candidate and some good social issues, but they don't want you to talk about it. Um, can you, well, I, I, you have a question? I, yeah, my question is, can you discuss based on the... Uh, the difference by merit and the difference of your drawback of the, the public business and private business and the public issues. Yes, uh, you know th that's a very broad question, and and I've tried to address that question in in several papers that uh, and uh, little bits of that question in several papers that I've written for Cato, uh, as well as in a larger sense in, in the books I've written, The Best Laid Plans and, and Gridlock, which Cato published. Uh, but the, what I see transit's role is providing transportation for people who don't want to drive. But with government ownership of transit, transit's role has been to try to capture as much money from the comp competition, whether that competition is highways or schools or fire or whatever, transit's role has been to try to capture as much money as it can from the competition so it goes for high-cost systems of transit. Then it says, okay, now how are we going to get people to ride that transit? Well, we'll draw an urban growth boundary around our city so that people can't live in single-family homes because we're going to make single-family homes unaffordable. Then we're going to subsidize the construction of, of high-density housing along the tr expensive transit systems that we build. So every, every rail station is going to have high-density housing, so people will live in that high-density housing and ride the transit. But the high-density housing itself will have to be subsidized because people don't want to live in high-density housing. They want to live in single-family homes. So we pile subsidy on subsidy, regulation on regulation. We make housing unaffordable, which makes it hard for people uh, earning a, a, an ordinary wage to, to be able to, to feed their family because the, so much of their income is going into the mortgage, and we create all kinds of problems. These kinds of problems have not hit everywhere in the country, but they're hitting more and more places, and transit is a part of the problem. It's not part of the solution because it's government-run. Well, I think she directed it both ways. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it won't surprise you. I see things differently. Uh, first, you happen to live in the only state that I know of that does urban growth boundaries, so that's pretty much a red herring in this discussion. Uh, the... Um, the, the, I will agree with Randall, it's a terribly complex topic. 
we get in these discussions as if everything is all black and all white and there was no history that went on before and we can suddenly change the world now. Certainly, wherever the private sector can uh, make a buck, we ought to be encouraging that. Certainly, we ought to be reducing unnecessary regulations that if they've outlived their usefulness for whatever protection or whatever the reason was they, they were put in there. That type of thing, I think no question about it. But there's no evidence at all that transit systems seek to steal money from other people. I mean, we're not, we're not trained to, to do that. We are given a task uh, to serve the public and to build uh, busways and, and trains and other things that communities want. When we put it before the voters, they usually approve. They don't always approve. We can certainly find examples where they don't. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, it is a very complicated thing. We don't count that we, when we uh, build a new road out to a, um, a previously undeveloped area, that then we've got to provide schools. We don't count that in the decision that was there. We've got to provide water. We've got to provide sewer. We've got to provide a whole lot of stuff that costs uh, the public. But we don't count that in subsidies. And, Randall, you can't mean what you said a few minutes ago, that before 1960, there were no subsidies in transportation. I mean, that's, that's just not true. <laughs> so uh, while I certainly uh, – uh, things have gotten more complicated since then, I certainly grant you that point, uh, but it's simply not a true statement. Question over here. And please make it a question. Okay. I'm on okay, and uh, my question is, what factor has caused public transit rights to decline? What are the solutions to improve public transit besides getting out low-income individuals subsidy? And what your opinion on the rail going from city to city, such as Los Angeles to L.A., uh, Charlotte to Atlanta, Milwaukee to Madison, and several others? All right, well, let's start with the last question. Uh, I think freight rail between those cities makes a lot of sense, but passenger rail doesn't make too much sense, and I say that with great regret because I love passenger trains. But uh, the reality is that uh, passenger trains are very expensive. Uh, an individual passenger car weighs a lot, and, and the payload is very low, which means the, the weight per passenger is high which means they, co they consume a lot of energy. They're not that energy efficient compared to driving, uh, and uh, they're not that fast. Uh, even high-speed trains are slower than flying. They're less convenient than driving, and Amtrak's Acela, which nominally breaks even, uh, uh, costs five times as much per passenger mile as, as airlines are driving or buses in the same corridor. So... Uh, I'm not at all enthused about those kinds of things. Instead, I like the idea of uh, uh, allowing the people choices, but making sure they pay the cost of their choices. And I, you know, Mr. Millar has presented this as either we subsidize public transit or it's going to go away. I don't think that's going to happen. I think if we stop subsidizing public transit, we will still have lots of transit. It'll just be different. It won't be such an emphasis on rail. It won't be such an emphasis on giant buses that run around empty much of the day. We'll have smaller vehicles. They'll be more nimble. They'll be more responsive to users. Uh, you'll probably get more transit service in the inner city. 
uh, where low-income people often are located because they're the transit users. But if you go to Atlanta, if you go to Los Angeles, if you go to other cities that have spent a lot of money trying to get uh, wealthy people out of their cars by running trains into wealthy suburbs, they've ended up cutting the transit service to the inner cities to be able to pay for those trains. So a rational transit system that was privately operated would have actually have more transit service in those inner city low-income neighborhoods. Two more questions. One in the back here, the lady in the back. I wanted to ask if highway subsidies, in both of your opinions, have increased the desirability of car use over public transit use, and if so, how or why not? Because I know there are subsidies for highways. Well, again, my view uh, would be that there are substantial subsidies there. We put highways where there's no business being highways. We allow uh, – we don't put highways perhaps where they should be, so – Uh, I do think that highway uh, uh, subsidies have uh, created an oversupply in some places of highways, an undersupply in others, uh, and uh, that is not a good economic thing for us to be doing. It certainly has impacted transit because it has changed urban form. Randall likes to write about social engineering of transit. There's no bigger social engineering program in America than the highway program, which essentially leaves you with no choice. So uh, it's a very good question, very complicated question, and one we could go on at great length. Final question here. Well, I'd just like to quickly say that that I disagree. Uh, There have been subsidies to highways. They've mostly been local. There have been virtually no federal subsidies, and, and in most states, no state subsidies. Almost all federal spending on highways has come out of gas taxes, except for some roads and national parks and national forests. Uh, uh, but of course, most spending on highways is not federal spending, but that's again. But virtually all state funding has that. come out of gas taxes or tolls. It's the local highways that are, have been uh, have been subsidized. But those subsidies add up to a, an average of about a penny per passenger mile, compared with a subsidy to transit of about seventy cents a passenger mile. So. The subsidy, if, if you ask highway users to pay a penny per passenger mile more, it would not change their travel habits a lot. If you asked transit riders to pay 70 cents a passenger mile more, a lot of them would immediately switch to driving. So I think that the, the, the effects of those subsidies have been a lot smaller than Mr. Millar suggests. Final question. Thank you very much. My name is Ken Reed. Um, Mr. Millar said that you cherry pick, but... In many respects, sir, some of the some of the, your statements, I think, are you've 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 stretched some things a little bit on on some of your facts when you say like a majority of people are using roads. It's about ninety eight percent. So um, and there's some other things too. I'll, I'll I'll get to later maybe. But Rand, I wanted to ask you. In one of your first books, you mentioned the Congestion Coalition, which has stuck with me ever since I got involved with advocating for better transportation in the D.C. area. The sort of alliance between uh, EPA and uh, smart growth advocates to sort of block the construction of highways and and push the, and, and emphasize planning and transit. But maybe the reason why these ballot initiatives are passing and the reason why we have this fixed effort that we can't get rid of with rail transit is because of something maybe equivalent to what Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex. We have the transit industrial complex. And I know this very well because I'm a locally elected official in, in Virginia, and I just see so many of my colleagues just glom onto rail, 
transit, uh, and then they get developers who want to get the density increases, and they have the transit unions that contribute money to their campaigns. And so we have this sort of vested, we have this sort of, like I said, a military-industrial complex out there that is now spreading into smaller cities, pushing light rail and pushing things that really don't make sense. Um, and I would venture to guess a lot of the folks who are members of Mr. Millar's group are companies, 60%, that benefit from these rail systems because there's more money in rail than there is bus. So <clears throat> is, is, what would you think of that? I'm not saying there's a conspiracy, but what do you make of that? It, well, well, the first point I would make is that uh, I looked up the, the number that 73% of ballot measures passed. That number was published by, I believe, the Center for Transportation Excellence. And first of all, they didn't count just transit ballot measures. They counted transportation ballot measures. So if Kansas City had a road bond measure and it passed, it was counted. So it's not an 73% of the measures are endorsing public transit. They're endorsing transportation. Second of all, they counted all measures passed in 2010, not just the ones last Tuesday. Thirdly, uh, in Wisconsin alone, there were, I believe, 48 different communities that voted on uh, 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 transit programs, and 47 of them turned them down. I looked at the list of uh, uh, the Center for Transportation Excellence list to see how they counted them, and they counted them as uncounted. So they didn't count them as yes or no, even though 47 out of 48 communities turned down uh, transit funding. So uh, the 73% number is a little bit questionable. Now, uh, on to your real question, which is what does a congestion coalition role play in this? I think when, when transit measures go on the ballot, uh, they are always presented as this is a way to relieve congestion. The Onion pointed out that 98% of American commuters want other people to ride transit so they can drive on uncongested roads. And that's why people end up voting for transit, because they always say it's going to relieve congestion. And if you sit down and debate them, they'll say, oh, no, we didn't say it was going to relieve congestion. We just said we were going to give people a choice. But as soon as your back is turned, oh, it's going to relieve congestion. Uh, and, and I've been through this over and over again. And so... Uh, People are sold on transit, not because they want to ride it or they want their kids to ride it, but because it's going to relieve congestion, and we know that's not true. Well, let's talk about the Center for Transportation Excellence. First, I don't know where you're getting your numbers. The year, I don't know what you read on their website, because I've got the stuff printed out right here. Uh, in fact, for the whole year, it's 70, 77%, not 73%. So you're correct. If I had said the whole year... I would have said 77. I'm talking about November 2nd, 2010, where it came up uh, as 73% uh, on that. So uh, we do our best to accurately, they do their best to accurately count uh, these ballot initiatives. Some are very easy. Was the property tax raised for transit or wasn't it? That one's an easy one. Other ones may have to do with policies. For example, voters earlier in the year in Cincinnati had a ballot initiative where you had to vote no in order for it to be yes for transit. So you may see it recorded as a no, and it may be a yes because it lifted a, a, a regulation that was preventing it from going. So I'd be very careful when I look into those things. Second, I would be thrilled and honored if I thought the few of us in public transportation somehow could fool and surround the American public and that the, uh, 
the uh, small amount of money that's spent comparatively on transit somehow generates an industry that can make the entire highway uh, industry and all, the, and all the car companies and everybody fall asleep at the switch, that's just absurd on its face uh, to go there. Uh, uh, on that kind of a thing. There was some kind of 98% thing you threw in there, too, which I don't remember what that was. And then, uh, finally, are you, do you really get your news from The Onion? And you follow it up with, with what? I mean, if you, uh, if full disclosure, they quoted me on that statistic. Now, they never asked me if they could quote me on it. Uh, and I think it might have been done for humor, but I'm not positive. I don't think it was done as a matter okay. of, ju of judging pe uh, public uh, policy. But I would say this. We live in a free, way, in a free society, and if I want to vote for a tax measure because I think it will benefit you and not me, that's my right. So what the heck is wrong with that? I, I, I find your line of logic rather confusing. Okay. Luncheon will be served upstairs as soon as you get there. And let's thank our two speakers.